You are listening to the First Baptist Jinx podcast. To learn more about FBC Jinx, including our gathering times, visit us online at fbcjinx.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Nate Nauman. Good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Jinx. For those of you over in the overflow, hello online. Um, Rick sends his greetings to you. He did have shoulder surgery this, this past week and is recovering well, just not quite ready to uh, be bumped into and, and uh, stuff around here, but he hopes to be back here this week. Diane even tells me he's being a relatively good patient, so um, we can, we can um, give him some, some encouragement in that. Um, he also gave me a warning to not say what I'm about to say, uh, but I ignored, I'm ignoring his warning. Um, I think the Lord in his sovereignty ordained that I would be here on this particular Sunday as a Nebraska fan. Um, to address you Sooners on this day, um, God speaks directly to abusing the vulnerable, the weak, <laughs> those who can't defend themselves. And for those of you cowboys too, you, you, you come under this judgment as well. I saw what you did last night. Um, but please, no phone calls, no texts. I'm fine. It's all good. And because today is a great day. It's a good day. We are in week two of, in studying our letter to Ephesians. So this morning we're going to cover three things, focus on three things. We're going to look back at the background of the Ephesian church. Now Cody walked through Revelation 2, sort of the, some of the tail end history that we have for Ephesians. We're going to back up to the beginning so we can get a full picture of, of, of what this letter, which fits in the middle, is going to be about. Then we're going to take a flyover view of what Ephesians says to us. And then we're going to look at the first two verses of Ephesians this morning. Now, for those of you, you know, 60 to 70 of you who are in our Wednesday night midweek How to Study the Bible class, we keep stressing that if you don't take time to see the big picture of a verse, a passage, a book, then it's really hard to get a clear picture of what the, the specific meaning or, or, or what this verse, this chapter, this letter to the Ephesians is supposed to say. So I know in a room this size, some of you say we're going to not get very far today. Or we're going to look at history and some, some talk about locations and dates and facts. And you're going, yeah, you nerd out with me to say, I like all that kind of stuff. Some of you are going to say, we're only going to get to two verses and to say, just hold your horses. We're, we're, we will make progress. I mean, next week, Drew's only going to cover one, ver, one, one sentence that's about 14 sentences long. But um, we've we're got to make progress because what we're saying this is if we don't understand, we are looking into an ancient letter that was written to a specific audience at a specific time. That we understand what's going on around us, we can understand the specific message what, who the author is, and the, even the relationship that Paul had with these Ephesian believers. Because if we don't understand it, does it, does it change the letters in, in, in Ephesians, change the words? No. But I, f- I fear that we can, we can miss the full meaning, the picture of it. We want to see Ephesians, I would say, in living color rather than in just black and white. And we can clearly understand then what Paul meant for this original audience around A.D. 62 in a specific city, in a specific time. So then we can then step back 
and say, all right, based upon what it meant then, what is true for all time for all believers, for us? And then how do we then specifically apply and obey what we have learned in the letter to the Ephesians? So, Last week, Cody mentioned that of all the churches in the New Testament, maybe except for the church in Jerusalem, we have more information and more history about the church in Ephesus than any other New Testament church. We know how and when it started. We know how it grew. We, knew, we know more about its leaders. There's Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and Timothy and even some other apostles who visited there. We know the issues they faced. From, and from what we looked at last week in Revelation 2, we know that the character issues that the Ephesian church was facing, that Jesus challenged them to address, that if they would not address the issues, that Jesus would remove their lampstand, their, their ability to, to hold the light of who Jesus was in the light of the gospel. And for the next several minutes, so now we're going to go back to Acts 18. So if you want to turn back to Acts 18, we're going to to hit a few verses along the way so we can see this background to the Ephesian church. Now the biblical background of Ephesians starts near the end of Paul's second missionary journey. He took three. This is, it starts on this second missionary journey. Acts 18, 18. Paul had traveled across modern day Turkey, crossed over into Macedonia, because of a vision, and so he visited places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. And in Corinth, he meets two tent makers named Priscilla and Aquila, who probably taught Paul the trade of tent making. And Priscilla and Aquila then travel with Paul to Ephesus on that same journey, and Paul visits Ephesus for the first time. Now, the city of Ephesus was a city that was about the size of 250,000 people. You know, a little bit larger than city of Tulsa proper. But this city was probably the second largest city in the entire world at the time. Whereas Rome was the political capital uh, of the Roman Empire, Ephesus was the economic capital of the empire. A port city, tons of trade, lots of activity, worship you know, worshiping the Roman gods. They had the temple of Artemis who was over, I think, wild animals and uh, childbirth and, and such. So it, they had this temple there that was known as, as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was, a, it was a, a civilized, modern city according to the time. But while in Ephesus, Paul follows his normal strategy, goes into the Jewish synagogue and begins to, to proclaim the gospel to his Jewish brothers. We don't know what the initial response was then, but we do have the details that Paul left there, left Priscilla and Aquila there, and Paul then returns home to Antioch from when he started his journey. Meanwhile, in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila encounter a a relatively new but young believer, someone who was a great speaker. His name is Apollos. And it said he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. But it says Apollos only knew the baptism of John the Baptist, meaning he did not know that the Holy Spirit, when you believed in Jesus, came to live inside of you and dwell you, empower you. So Priscilla and Aquila understood this, could discern that. They take him aside, and what do they do? They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. See the word 
accurately. It now has been used twice regarding this church. And accuracy of teaching, accuracy of doctrine. These are founding characteristics of the church in Ephesus. They're going to be a church that cares about making sure that their doctrine is proper and true. The letter to the Ephesians is a rich doctrinal book. At the end in Revelation 2, Paul tells the man, you have done a great job of keeping your, your doctrine pure, but you've missed it out on other things. But accuracy of teaching, accuracy of doctrine. Paul then, from Ephesus, returns to um, home. He comes back about a year later on his third missionary journey, stops there first, and for the, again, follows his normal strategy. He says, for the next three months, Goes into the local synagogue, Acts 19.8, boldly reasons, contends, um, explains the gospel. And he says, it preaches about the kingdom of God, really a phrase, I mean, the ways that God was making his kingdom known in the world through Jesus Christ, through what Jesus did on the cross. It says, but then when some had become stubborn, continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, and he began reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, probably this public building, a place where he could either, either rent or maybe use for free, and began teaching. Then what does it say? This continued for two years so that all of the residents of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord, Lord both Jews and and Greeks. Now, there's some very important details here in verse 10 that tell us about Ephesus. First, Paul spent an extended amount of time in Ephesus, more time in Ephesus than any other church, any other city that he had spent preaching, teaching, making, and training disciples in this hall of Tyrannus. And a concentrated focus, an intentional investment of time then led to the spread of the gospel and to the multiplication of believers and churches. Look at the result. Continue for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What happened is that the gospel spread hundreds of miles outside of this city to all the surrounding cities, probably because the people from those cities came into Ephesus because it was a major hub of business, and they heard the gospel, and they took it back to their own cities. And Paul would have trained believers in Ephesus to do what believers should do, to grow in their faith, to take responsibility and say, okay, now that I've received this, I must also go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. And we know that believers then took the gospel from Ephesus and went and planted other churches. Colossae is one of those. A man named Epaphras, uh, who came to faith under Christ, went and planted a church there. And all the other six churches that we read about in Revelation 2 are right around Ephesus. Probably church plants from the mother church of Ephesus. All of Asia Minor had heard the gospel. Acts 19 goes on to describe how God did extraordinary miracles in the name and the power of Jesus through Paul. And fear and awe fell on the believers in Ephesus. Jesus' name was being magnified. People were leaving their sorcery and their occultic practices. And in 1920, it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
Paul continues his third missionary journey, heads over to modern-day Greece, revisits the cities and the churches that he had planted. Then on his way, probably because of such a, the, the, the close relationship that he has with Ephesus, he's on his way back home to Jerusalem because he wants to get home. But he calls the leaders of Ephesus to come, come meet him in a, in a neighboring city to give them one last final word of encouragement and to see him one last time because he had invested so much time in them. He knew the integral role that they had played in the spread of the gospel in the area. And he, he reminds them that he had proclaimed the gospel of the grace of God, that he had taught them the whole counsel of God. Now these leaders needed to stay alert. There are wolves that are going to come into your, your church, into your flock, try to deceive you, try to, to lead your sheep away and astray, to deceive them. But be vigilant. Be careful of your doctrine. Keep teaching the truth. And it says that Paul then entrusted them to God and to the word of God's grace, which is able to build them up. Paul goes home to Jerusalem, is arrested in Jerusalem, is, is then hauled off to Rome and is under house arrest in Rome. And then about four to six years later, after this last encounter Paul had with the church of Ephesus, he writes a letter to Ephesus while under house arrest in Rome, and he writes this letter to Ephesus. About five years after writing this letter and several others, Paul is executed. Fast forward about 30 years, John the apostle writes Revelation and addresses Ephesians and, like we've said, the other six churches that are right around the city of Ephesus. And he praises the Ephesians, says, you've endured, you've persevered under horrible, harsh circumstances. Your faith is intact. Way to go. You've kept your doctrine. But you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten the love that you had for for Christ and for God and for people. That your truth is good, but you've forgotten that it's also about loving people, about making a difference, getting dirty in the trenches with people that are around you. And there's a warning, right? A warning says, go back to that love. As Cody mentioned last week, love is used more predominantly in the, the letter to the Ephesians than, than in other letters that Paul writes. They were to return to this love, the love of Christ, love of others, without compromising the truth. Or Jesus would remove their lampstand. It based upon historical evidence, the church at Ephesus ceased to exist at some point. So what does that say to us? We come to this letter to the Ephesians knowing that, okay, there's so much richness in here, but we come with a a sober warning to us and say, we're not any better than them. What is the message that Paul was intending to, to relay to them so that we might take heed and obey and apply? So based upon all we know about the, the historical background of the Ephesian church, what are some key takeaways that we need to keep in mind as we come to this letter? Well, first, the church started strong here. Started strong, doctrinal purity, proclaiming the gospel, sending people out, training them to go plant churches. We see in here probably the most normal and natural pattern of what the New Testament church and believers are supposed to do. Come to faith in Christ, be discipled, be grown up, and then go out and do that in places that have yet to know and hear the gospel. 
However, just because you start strong doesn't mean that as a church you will finish strong. Because we know historically, Ephesians, the church, did not finish strong. That Jesus, at some point, closed the doors of that church, said, I will remove my lampstand from you so that my light, the light of who I am and the light of the gospel, is no longer either polluted or tainted. You're no longer my spokespeople. So we as a church, as believers, come to this letter with eyes wide open, and I hope with a humility as we walk through this, is saying, we need to listen up. Be careful. So the historical background. Now, now to an overview. Let's see what Paul's letter to the Ephesians kind of says for us as we, as we fly over kind of chapters 1 through 6 here. As we've talked about even last week, the chapters 1 through 3 are a big picture, heavy doctrinal. This is, this is what God did. And then the last three chapters, verses, chapters 4 through 6, get very practical. It says, now you as believers, do this, do this, and do this. In chapter 1, Paul reminds the Ephesian believers about God's big picture plans, about his, his unfolding plans, eternal plans to save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. He uses big picture words, and you can use the word cosmological. Right? That's a, that's a, you can use that word tomorrow in your conversations. Cosmological plan. This is God's big picture plan for the whole world. That we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heaven, heavenly places. That there's, there's immeasurable power. He uses big language. And then in chapter 2, Paul comes but says, and this is where you are. Huge world. God's big picture plans. But you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us and the mercy he wants to show, he made us alive and he, he raised us with Christ and he has seated us in the heavenly places and you've been saved by grace through faith. It's not a result of your works because you can't do enough works or be good enough to earn God's salvation or the forgiveness of your sins. It is by grace you have been saved, but your works still matter, that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God, again, prepared, big picture, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Then Paul goes on to talk about, hey, here's the picture of the church, that we are a one church in the rest of chapter 2. Undivided, made up of of Jews and Gentiles, we've been made one. Chapter 3 talks about the church, how the church is God's plan, and we are to steward, we are to, to, to hold this gospel we've entrusted to us that we might proclaim it to the world and this mystery that was hidden for centuries before now has been made known that this that this mystery is the fact that gentiles you and me get to be a part of the church we've been grafted in into one body the big picture but yet You, this is right where you are. You are here. Chapter 4 begins with the practical side of the letter, explaining to the believers how they can walk and live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, that we have been called out of something, out of our sin, and we have been called to a new life, a new identity, a new purpose, a new mission. And Paul gives practical explanations about then how are we to live where we are, about how we're to be a husband and a wife and a child and a parent and to, to live in wisely in the day and age in which we live. 
And Paul tells these Ephesian believers that we are living in a spiritual battle. And if we are to be successful in this spiritual battle, then we must put on the full armor of God. But chapters 1 through 3 are going to be, be rich in doctrine. And in this big picture plan of what God has done, he's going to say, but he's going to go back again, but you, but you. Listen, here's how you fit in. And then in chapters 4 through 6, it's, and here's then how you should live. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul begins this letter to the Ephesian church in a very standard way, according, I would say, to, according to the, the normal patterns and ways that they wrote letters back in ancient Greece. It begins, you know, letters that we've even found of like uh, just common people back then. That they write a letter, they say who they are, a little different than what we do. We say who we are at the end of our letters, but they say, this is who I am, this is who I'm writing to. And then there's usually a greeting, say, I hope your health is well. May you be, I hope you're doing well. And Paul gives a sort of a standard greeting. Now, for those of you in this day and age who actually still write letters, or even emails, right? There's a form that we kind of, we start with, say, dear so-and-so. And sometimes there's a beginning letter of like, hey, dear Nate, I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you've had a good week, despite yesterday. Um, we have these forms. Our, our letters start again. We, we say who we are at the end, but we start with these, these natural forms. And Paul follows this in all of his, in all of his letters, right? Just like we do. Dear mom, I am at camp. It's been going great. Send more money or put money in my canteen account online. Um, to, my, to my wife, and we write a certain type of letter to your wife. Or a dear John, um, I found someone else, right? That's the form, the, the structure of these types of letters. And Paul starts, he starts, Paul, who was the author? He says, I'm Paul. He's formerly Saul. The man formerly who persecuted the church, but Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and says, you are now mine. You will now be an instrument of mine to take the gospel, to be my representative, to be an apostle, which simply means one who has been sent, an apostle, one who was sent by me to go proclaim the gospel to a people. And that was to the Gentiles. Paul reminds his audience that it wasn't even Paul's choice to be a messenger. It wasn't as part of his plans. Right? He was going to be opposing the gospel, opposing these Christians. But he was made an apostle by the will of God, by God's sovereign choosing and ordaining of Paul to say, you are now an instrument of mine. Paul knew who he was. He understood his identity. He understood his calling, what he had been called from and what he was called to. Then Paul addresses the audience. Who is the audience? He writes, to the saints, a term which simply means those who have been made holy. Those who have been made holy, and we're going to see in a little bit, those who are in Christ. Their identity, Paul knows, has been now been found in Christ. They're no longer known by their, their past sinful deeds, but by the, the righteousness that God has placed upon them because of their faith in Jesus. Now it says, the saints who are in Ephesus. And if you have a, a Bible, sometimes there's a footnote in there. It says, this phrase, in Ephesus, is not in every ancient New Testament manuscript. You know, ancient pieces of paper that we found that Ephesians was written on. Sometimes that phrase is missing. Let me explain. This, this shouldn't be like a surprising that the original had in Ephesus, but maybe the copies did not. We know from Ephesians that it was the, a central hub. 
Paul wrote it to this church. And the letter to the Ephesians, you would think that if he spent three years with these people and had visited a couple other times, that there would be some very personal you know, identification comments because he, he, he knew everybody. He knew everything. But instead, Ephesians is written a little more broad, not with all the personal comments that sometimes Paul writes in his other letters. And he knew that this was going to be a church that would be circulated to all the churches in the area. Why? Because Ephesians had planted all those churches. So it makes perfect logical sense that when this letter was received by the Ephesians, they knew it was supposed to go to everybody. Everybody's going to wonder, hey, what did Paul write to you? That somebody copied the letter and either left out that phrase or you know, erased it and said, all right, now to the churches in, in Smyrna or Pergamum or Colossae, you know, the other churches that would have heard it. But it was writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and their identity, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. At this point, they had been faithful. They hadn't left their first love. They knew that their identity, Paul knew that their identity was faithful in Christ Jesus. And this phrase, in Christ Jesus, is describing their spiritual condition, their, their spiritual position, the new identity that they had. And this phrase, in Christ or in him referring to Christ, is a phrase that is going to be used frequently throughout this letter. In fact, in Christ or in him is used nine times in the first 14 verses of this letter, and then 15 times total throughout the letter. Paul wants to remind these believers of who they are. They are in Christ. And then Paul gives his blessing. He says, I hope that you are doing well. He, he starts it by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. These were common greetings among believers. Even there are common greetings among some believers today in churches throughout the world. Grace and peace. And this was Paul's repeated greeting in his letters. And every one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he begins with this. And even Peter in his letters begins with this common common greeting. But as we know as believers, these are not just throwaway words to us. Grace is going to be a common theme in this letter to the Ephesians. That Paul is going to say, by grace you have been saved. We know that we need grace. We know that we have, that peace has been established between us and God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the peace, as it's going to say in Ephesians 2, has, been, has allowed us, those who are far away, God has made peace with us that we may be brought near to him. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close here this morning, let's just step back one more time to the big picture and ask, why do we study the letter to the Ephesians? Well, number one, because it declares the gospel with such clarity. It declares that, that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. That our sin had separated us from Christ and we needed a Savior to come rescue us, to make us alive, to raise us from the dead and give us a new identity and new life. Not because of our works, because as Paul keeps saying, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. We have come to then realize that we don't earn God's favor, but it is a gift to us. And our faith is placed 
in a person, in Jesus Christ, and on what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then the Ephesian church, this letter to them says, we are then to steward as a church this message of the gospel and continue to proclaim it. That God has this big picture plan and you are here, part of it, right here, right now. Second, we look at Ephesians because it declares to us as the, as the church, First Baptist Jesus, what the church is, who is the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ, the purpose of the church, that we are to steward the mystery of the gospel, that we are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and that we as the people of the church are to live out our identity. Ephesians highlights and magnifies the church in a way that no other New Testament letter does. But as we've talked about, why study Ephesians? Because we come to Ephesians with a humility and with eyes wide open, knowing that at one point their, their heads were engaged, their hearts were engaged in love for Christ and for their neighbor. But at some point, they made a switch. And I think the Ephesian church became an institutional church where it was so much about dotting all the T's, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, in their doctrine that they forgot about loving people and taking the gospel to people, of getting messy with people who were walking in sin. And they, were, they cared about just making sure we got all of our, our doctrine right, as opposed to saying, we are going to be accurate biblically, because that's how the church started, but we are also going to love people well. Just because you start strong doesn't mean we finish strong. Therefore, we as a church this morning come here to this letter. And we look at it with eyes wide open, with hearts open, saying, God, what do we as a church, as a local gathered body, 2,000 years later, say, what do we need to take warning of? What needs to change in us so that we may live out the identity of being in Christ and part of this body of Christ to the world in which we live. I'm gonna invite the, the band, the worship team to come up as we close, and I'm gonna challenge you. Just on these big picture things we've looked at here this morning, things that are gonna be, gonna be true about the letter to the Ephesians is number one, it's identity issues. As Paul identified his own identity and identifies the identity of his audience, they were the faithful saints who were in Christ Jesus. I want to say that if you don't know if your identity is in Christ, if you've never made that decision to say, I, I've, I know I've moved from spiritual death to spiritual life because I've placed all of my trust in what Jesus did for me and nothing that I have done in and of my own, then we'll have people here this morning, pastors, Maybe someone in your small group that you know. Maybe someone else here in the church says, I, I, need, to, I need to solidify my identity. And place my faith in Christ. That I would encourage you, if that's not a decision that you've made, that, that we talk about that this morning. For those of you, those of us, who know, I know where my identity is. But we're not faithfully living that identity out. Our identity is placed or based in something else throughout the week that we come humbly to Ephesians and say, God, remind me of who I am, why I'm here, 
what my role is in your body, the church, and that I may, may be renewed and, and repent from where I've gotten it wrong and, and, and go and live out, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which I have been called, which Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1. So I'm going to encourage you to stand. We're going to sing. And I would encourage us to, to respond as the Lord leads. Father, thank you. Thank you for this letter that has encouraged and challenged and reminded the church believers throughout centuries about your great plans for us, about the goodness of your grace, the immeasurable riches of the, the inheritance and the power and all these big words that Paul uses about what you have done for us, that we can find our place in your plans right here. And Father, I pray that as Christians or those who are, are contemplating faith in Christ, God, that you would continue to show us the next steps we are to take. And we pray all of these things in the name of our